From the Upper Mount Samiesville Studios in Samiesville, Pennsylvania, comes the We Talk Games interview. to the exciting interview Starcade, where we extract the greatest gaming industry developers, fans, personalities, visionaries, artists, and etc. etc. from the video gaming universe. All interviews that we conduct on We Talk Games. Go to wetalkgames.com, become a member of that social media networking family. I am Wiggly on the line, Keith Laposh on the line. Kyle Von Kubik. Extraction. Yes, that's what it's all about. Yes. So today we have a very special episode. This was a, a favorite of yours. Yeah. Yeah. This was a favorite of yours because you I love- know the listeners are sick of hearing me talk about point and click adventure games <laughs> on We Talk Games. But hey, let's talk about them some more. Yes. And two of the biggest names in point and click developers there from the beginning. Many of them coming from the George Lucas ranches. That's right. <laughs> From the George Arts. Yes. And and not many of them. These two particular individuals are from LucasArts. You know, George Previous. Lucas, of course, very famous, number one, for killing pinball, and number two, for creating juvenile sex toys. <laughs> what? Remember, remember they had to pull the inflatable Jar Jar Binks off the market when they released this because <laughs> it had like four orifices that parents were coming home and finding their children laying on the floor with Jar Jar Binks. I mean, it's embarrassing, but that was his brainchild as well. So Misa feels so dirty. <laughs> me, uh. me have no self respect for self. <laughs> All right, but. Uh, Anyway, these guys had nothing to do with that. (laughs) These guys had nothing to do with that. Uh, Now, we were in the middle of doing our We Talk Games 8, which was our first con tour, where we were actually out on location at at a video game convention. Well, half the show was from the video game convention. Then we conducted the rest of the interview on on the drive home using some gimmick from Rit Team and uh, Wickack Flipglees. I'm not even sure what that was called. And then uh, I got on the the horn with both Noah Falstein and Dave Grossman. And these guys worked on some of the biggest titles of the point-and-click genre to come out of LucasArts, particularly Mm -hmm. Full Throttle, uh, Sam and Max Hit the Road, and Monkey Island. And The Dig. And The Dig. One of the last uh, titles in that point-and-click sort of genre. Now, see, a lot of people poo-poo on The Dig, uh, saying it was like trying to be a little too heavy. I enjoyed The Dig. Not as much as some of the other titles, but, you know, I'm a sucker for the genre, particularly from LucasArts, so I'm a little skewed. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, let's open up for Noah Falstein, a true veteran in the video game industry. And, and as we'll find out, a uh, just great humanitarian oh, uh, using his game talents for something uh, much bigger than a point-and-click adventure game. Definitely. Open it up. San Francisco, go! Noah Falstein, hit us! Hey. What's going on, man? <laughs> Life as usual. Yeah, yeah. Good good going on the, on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. I'm the one with the headache. That's right. Now I remember. Noah, you started in the video game industry in the 80s, 1980. That's right. Come up on 30 years in a few more months. Fantastic. You worked with some of the greatest companies that I, I mean, when I go down my list of things I still enjoy to play uh, and things that I think i enjoy to play until i play them you definitely have worked for these companies well i've been real lucky i've uh, got a chance to work for some really great companies and often you know in startup mode so i get to see them built out of nothing and it's been a very exciting time now the first uh, game that you worked on well one of, one of the first games i would assume and probably the one that has resonated throughout the years with all sorts of gamers especially arcade gamers and, and shooter shooter gamers has been sinistar and i'd like to just take a moment to talk about sinistar a bit 
Absolutely. Uh, I actually worked for Milton Bradley, the company that you know makes it better known for board games and puzzles for a few years, but worked on about 10 projects, and every one of them was canceled before they put it out the door. So Sinistar was the first thing that I actually got to work on that shipped, and uh, as you say, it, it still has quite a cult following. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I don't know, did you ever hear of the philosophical relevance of Sinistar? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, great. Somebody had pointed out that to me online about five years ago, and I, I met the fellow who wrote that. Any stories about uh, programming that? What What did you have to work with? Uh, what, what oh, was... sure. Well, I mean, it was an interesting project. Uh, that was in 82 that I started working on it, and okay. uh, we actually ended up with a team of about three and a half programmers and you know, one and a half artists and a sound guy, and it was a really big team for for those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, small by today's standards, but it was exciting to be coordinating a group like that. And uh, Williams Electronics was a, a great company. We had had uh, a, a string of successes like Defender and Stargate and Joust and Robotron and. Sinistar was meant to, uh, you know, come along and be the next big fast action shooter at that time. Mm-hmm. So uh, they brought me in. I was one of their new guys, you know, assigned to this project uh, that had been running into a little bit of trouble. They'd been having trouble getting it off the ground. Uh, and it came together really well. We had a lot of fun. It was a very tough game, uh, both to make and to play. You know, we really tried to make it as challenging as the uh, other games. And sure. as the project leader, I ended up tuning the game. So I, I kept making it harder until I was having trouble playing it. So that's how I knew we were at the right stage. Yeah, so yeah. It's actually, by definition, a tough game for me to play. Very good, very good. And Sinistar, one of the my favorite elements of it, and, and most people's, especially the people behind the philosophical relevance of Sinistar, is the, is the audible taunts. How early in the game design was audio a part of the consideration there? Well, it came in pretty early. Uh, the original concept for the game came from a guy named John Newcomer, who had called it Juggernaut and had a, a somewhat different kind of look and feel. And when I came in, you know, John handed the reins over and we brainstormed a little bit, and Ken Fidesna, who was the head of engineering there, who was with the company until just a couple of years ago, basically spent his whole career there, he was the one who said, why not put speech in, that we'd had a pinball game called Black Knight that um, taunted you in a similar way, and we had the chip for that, and uh, had never put it in a video game before, and thought it was time to, you know, add some voice to the games. There have been a few that have been out before us uh, that had done voice, but I think Sinistar was the most extensive use of it at the time, you know, even with only you know, seven different things that he said, that was uh, quite a bit for a game in those days when you know, memory was measured in bytes, not even you know, K when you're sure. in storage. It wasn't speech synthesis, it was actually samples. Yeah, it was samples, and it was uh, we we had a synthesizer for our sound effects so that uh, we could actually keep the data to an absolute minimum there. But the speech was all digitized, and at that point, the the arcade games were really the um, you know high end systems of the game industry. That the home game systems, you know, this was before Nintendo you know, even had their first console. So the standard was the Atari VCS that had 128 bytes of RAM and, mm-hmm. and 4K cartridges that you know you really couldn't fit anything in there so we had luxuries like um, I forget how much was dedicated to the speech probably something like 8k memory which you know as I say was double the entire game for one of the Atari uh, console cartridges at that time but right. still an absolutely tiny amount by any standards today you know the the shortest song that people have is many times that size just to get reasonable quality so you know we, we crammed it in there we got a um, a radio announcer, in fact, from the Chicago area, a guy named John Doremus, to do the voices. Oh, okay. And, and he did everything except the roar. We asked him to do a roar, and I, you know, I wish we'd kept the audio track because his best attempt was something like, <laughs> it was just terrible. So uh, we ended up blending together. I think it was a, a lion's roar with some special effects, or it, it might have been some other kind of animal that we got out of the uh, local Chicago zoo. Uh, and, you know, somebody went down and recorded it. Wow, fantastic. The whole game, as you said, you, you tried to make it difficult. And when I think about the next shooter to eclipse Defender or Stargate, I, of course, think of going out and mining. What more uh, can you do? do possibly it's more uh, aggressive than mining but uh, but then you then sinistar makes his appearance and th- it feels like 
it's the exorcist going on. There, there's some real tension there. Um, well, you know, it, it was a game that uh, made an impression on people because his entrance was delayed, and and I have to credit uh, John Newcomer with that for coming up with the ideas. He was a really brilliant stager of things, and and realized that if you didn't know what this thing was until part way into the game, and then suddenly it comes in and it's you know nearly invincible, your your bullets don't touch it anymore. It would just really startle people. But the addition of voice and the fact that it just roars when it comes onto the screen. Mm-hmm. A lot of people had the experience that the first time they played, when the Sinistar showed up, they actually were so startled they jumped back from the console. And yeah. Of course, he, he munches on their ship and they lose a life instantly. And happily, their first reaction was, you know, I got to get this guy, you know, who just who just killed me off, and not uh, what a stupid game. <laughs> but uh, it really did startle quite a few people. Yeah, it's it's a it's real it's a real gaming moment. It was a really fun game to work on, uh, partly because of the team. Uh, one of the things that I will remember for personal reasons is uh, I hired a guy named R.J. Michael to do some of the explosions and special effects in the game. Oh. And R.J. returned the favor a few years later by introducing me to the woman that I ended up uh, getting married to. Wow. So I've been very grateful to him, and we've stayed friends all these years uh, since then. Uh, another great video game union disclosed here on We Talk Games. We we had Nolan Bushnell. Uh, he talked about many people falling in love over Pong, and now now this. Yep. Well, and in fact, RJ went on to start on the Amiga computer and met his wife at Amiga. So uh, it was a, a multiple game uh, and computer relationship uh, nexus point that way. I think maybe these online dating services have got it all wrong. They just need to bring people together playing games. Speaking of which, uh, this will sort of jump around a little bit. I think uh, a large body of your work, unless I'm uh, completely mistaken, is focused primarily on the individual gaming experience, a personal gaming experience. Did you work on anything that was more of a social gaming experience or anything in the plans for that or... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've worked on so many different things. I love variety so much mm. that at this point, the, the simplest way to describe it is that I, I haven't done sports games, and I've done pretty much everything else, you know, almost every type of platform and certainly every game genre. <laughs> and, in fact, when I was at Lucasfilm, I was sharing the office with a guy named Chip Morningstar, who was the lead designer behind something called Habitat that was the very first graphic-based virtual world. Uh, in fact, Chip coined the term avatar as it's used today. That oh. uh, you know, He was the first one to use that for, for you know, graphic representation of yourself that you, you know, see in an online virtual world. Sure. It was released as something called Club Carib uh, on the system that actually predated America Online. But we had this up and running. I should say uh, Chip and, and Randy and Eric, the guys who worked on it, had it up and running back in 88 Commodore 64s with 300 baud modems, and, and yet they could actually have multiple avatars moving around in a virtual world and chat and teleportation booths and wow. uh, you know all the kinds of stuff that we've grown used to with online games now that really were, were pioneered way back then. Sure, sure. Fantastic. Let's jump into uh, Lucas. I know that you, you've done... Uh, how many games do you think that you worked on? 70, 80? Oh, at least that many. I wow. mean, probably about 70 or 80 that have been published or at least gotten out into the public and at two or three times that number that you know were only in design phases or, or got canceled for one reason or another. Right, right. Let's talk about a little bit about LucasArts. You, you worked there back when it was called LucasFilms uh, and, and then into LucasArts, and you worked on a lot of the games that Spielberg was also involved with, and pretty much the inception, the birth of the SCUM system. A lot of people familiar with gaming know, have heard of, heard of SCUM, and we may even use SCUM in probably an unlicensed manner of some sort. Uh, but SCUM was a, a big uh, push, a revolutionary uh, graphical adventure game system. It was sort of a cross between code and uh, a language. It was basically a... Uh sort of an assembly language designed specifically for adventure games that uh, Ron Gilbert and and Eric Wilmunder, who I I mentioned with Habitat, uh, Mm -hmm. basically put together. 
And I had hired Ron to uh, do the Commodore 64 port of Coronas Rift, uh, the first game that I did at LucasArts back when it was just Lucasfilm Games. And Ron and I have stayed friends ever since then and worked on each other's games many times over the years. But he basically put that together to form the the core engine that we used for most of the uh, adventure games and at LucasArts up through uh, oh into the 90s. Then they eventually they they gave up and, and came up with a new system shortly before they they killed off their current work then on adventure games and happily they've been reviving some of that and republishing our old games uh, on Steam and um, embedding them in some of their new releases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now I've seen some brief clips of the Lucas Ranch, the soundstage and studios. What was the game development environment like at Lucas Films? Well, we were there for four years at, at Skywalker Ranch. Uh, I, I worked for Lucasfilm for eight years back from uh, eighty-two to sorry, eighty-four to ninety-two. And uh, the middle of four years that I was there, we were at Skywalker Ranch, and we were actually the first uh, creative group to work up there when it had just opened. We we moved into a building that, in fact, was just finishing construction, and it was certainly the nicest place I've ever worked in my life, and mm. really ever expect to work. It was so uh, beautiful. And, and such a great setting. It's out in the hills here in Marin, uh, close to where I live now. I came out here uh, to work here and, and just fell in love with the area. Uh, George Lucas has great taste in um, places to live in the world. Sure. And uh, it's it's a huge area. We had these beautiful buildings that were built according to a storyboard to look like they'd been around for a hundred years. Mm. They, they actually artificially aged the wood and uh, rusted some of the metal so that it would look like it fit in. And it's very much like walking into a movie set and getting to work there. Wow. Um, very comfortable. Uh, in fact, one of the, the exciting things was uh, when we had the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, we were actually having a meeting in the main house there in this gorgeous conference room with a, a giant mahogany desk, and the ground started shaking, and we were joking with uh, Brian Moriarty, who had been the project leader on Loom, because he was very into earthquakes and you know had been putting up a map on his wall and putting in pins, so you know, we said, hey, Brian, here's another one for your map, and then suddenly it got really serious and went from just being a mild shake to heavy-duty one, and Brian looked at us and said, everybody under the table. So it was sort of like a cartoon where I, I remember everyone looking at each other, seeing this solid, you know, thick mahogany table, and the next thing I remember is almost all of us were underneath it, you know, looking out. I don't even remember getting underneath, but, uh, you know, it was a, a very beautiful place to work, and I've got lots of fond memories. Um, uh, one of our guys got one of the bullwhips. It was oh, made by the oh. same people who did it for the Indiana Jones movies, and would go out behind our, our building and practice by snapping the heads off of weeds and uh, he got really good at it so it sounded like gunshots as he was uh, practicing with the bullet back there sure speed of sound hey uh do you ever see joseph campbell walking around back then no, we worked in that same library where those uh, Bill Moyer shots were made, but wow. they really taught you early on, if there are any celebrities around, mm. and there often were, to just act as if they weren't there and, you know, walk past them and ignore them. Gotcha. So gotcha. Uh, there were a lot of um, uh, recording stars in particular, because they did a lot of audio recording there. You know, people like Huey Lewis and Bonnie Raitt were, were there uh, frequently, for example. But I never saw Bill Moyers, uh, just a, a handful of other stars. I see. And you mentioned how they uh, tried to uh, make this more like a mythical thing. What was George's involvement? Did his spirit of mythos trickle into any of your projects or all of your projects? Well, it's interesting. George, you know, he has had amazing vision for the use of uh, computers and high-tech. He did some of the very early video editing. He started up the guys that spun off to become Pixar, and we were all part of the same computer division together. He started games long before, you know, other companies were even thinking about it. And yet he really isn't into that stuff himself. He, uh, he doesn't like to play video games, and he would spend, I would say, no more than an hour or two every year with with the games group and we were a little bit disappointed right up until uh i got to work on the dig which uh came in from steven spielberg who you know had come by to do some editing on um boy i've forgotten the name of it now is richard dreyfus is a firefighter um anyway um Spielberg was a real game nut and, and still loves to play video games all the time. And 
suddenly George was really excited because now his friend Stephen wanted to play with the games group, and so he was suddenly involved with our, our early meetings on the dig. And, I see. Uh, it was fun to work with both of them on that because they, they both put in on, on brainstorming uh, sessions. Now, completely off the record, except that I will broadcast it, did George <laughs> ever share with you his ultimate plan to destroy pinball? <laughs> no, I never heard that. I one. guess he kept that secret then. <laughs> now, speaking of speaking of the dig, uh, which types of narratives do you prefer in adventures games? You like to do the well, I guess you like them all, but do you, would you say that you preferred the more comedy nature, like the Sam and Max hit the road, or more serious nature, like the dig? Well, you know, I was one of the few people who who spanned that. You know, most people specialized in one or the other. That Ron, for example, Ron Gilbert worked mostly on the comedy stuff, and I know he's got his new Death Spank that's coming out shortly. It's uh, in the same vein. And in fact, Ron and I and David Fox were co-project leaders on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And the only time we really had a serious disagreement was whether to treat the end of the game seriously or comically. And I was pushing for serious. Ron wanted comedy. And what happened is we compromised. We set up a random number generator, and some of the time uh, it plays it my way, some of the time it played it Ron's way, and we, ah. we checked over uh, the code to make sure the other guy wasn't cheating on us and <laughs> setting it up to, to just be random up until it was released and then switch over to the other side. Right, right. So I really like both. I mean, I, I think for adventure games, uh, Ron has made a point uh, that comedy is a really good thing to do in adventure games. So some of the puzzles are so obscure and ridiculous that if it's not a comedy game, it's just hard to take it seriously. And at least with comedy, you can laugh at, at using a, a monkey as a monkey wrench. But uh, <laughs> if you try and put that into a serious game, and, and many people have, then yeah. it just feels incongruous. Yeah, right, right. It's not it's not playing it for the truth. Can you divulge any Easter eggs that you personally might have put into games? Oh, let's see. Uh, well, you know, the very first Easter egg I did was back in Sinistar, where we uh, stuck our names in the game, which in, the, in those days was a, um, a big no-no, and we were actually really afraid we might get fired if they found out we had done it. And that was the first type of Easter egg, right? Oh, no, I'm, I'm sure other people did it before okay. we did. Uh, in fact, I remember hearing about that kind of thing from someone else before we, we put it in our game. Okay. But uh, it was certainly the, the first one I know of that got into one of the Williams games. The Lucasfilm, you know, we didn't put in that much. Uh, in, in Coronas Rift, I did something similar, that there was one of the levels in the games that essentially if you put it into a, a level editor, which, of course, we didn't provide for the game, <laughs> it, you could see my initials were the landscape, and I just uh, uh. started with my initials and built it in that way but nothing too outrageous you know with the comedy games we were pretty upfront about the the funny stuff and the crazy stuff we we put in references to all of our other games and i came up with something in indiana jones and the last crusade where indy's in uh, a castle and and one of the comedy lines as he's trying to to talk his way past the guards is uh, I'm selling these fine leather jackets and for some reason that one kind of got picked up and, and was in almost every adventure game we had after that. Uh, it was just a running joke sure, you know, sure. usually in the, the least appropriate way. <laughs> you talked about a lot of uh, cancelled projects. What what are some of your favorite unreleased or cancelled projects uh, while working uh, Well, and throughout your career even? Well, you know, I, a lot of them were at Lucasfilm. We were very fertile in, you know, our, our coming up with ideas, but sure. you know, we only had limited resources, of course, to actually make them. One of my favorites was one that I worked on with, with Ron. It was his idea uh, originally, something called I Was a Teenage Lobot. And uh, it was really, I think, very cleverly set up to take advantage of what the computers of that time could do well. It was set in the future where they'd just given up on artificial intelligence and realized it was easier to take a person and lobotomize them and use their mm. brain to control a robot. But only criminals were you know, supposed to, to you know, be used that way. It was a, a death sentence, basically. Wow. And what happens is you're essentially shanghaied that you know, your brain, you, know, you, you go to sleep one day and wake up 
as a shoeshine robot with your brain inside this robot body, but they haven't actually, um, they're, they're keeping your body alive to, to use it for spare parts. So the, the object of the game, you're on a space station, so you're in this isolated area that was good for the computers we had at the time, and your object is to figure out how to get back into your body when all that you can do is say, yes, no, would you like a shoe shine, and that will be seven credits, uh, please. And from there, you kind of work your way up uh, the ladder and get your brain put into different robot bodies before eventually you, you solve the mystery of who it was that disembodied you like that. Wow, wow. Yeah, I still think that would make a great game. I, I've talked to Ron on and off that I think that would be a fun one to, uh, to resuscitate. Yeah, much better than Wirehead for the Sega CD. I don't know if you ever... <laughs> No, I never saw that one. That's completely not this. Of all the scum-based games uh, to be released by LucasArts, which do you think are your favorites among the ones that you didn't work on? Well, let's see. Probably the original Secret of Monkey Island, I would say. that. Uh, I mean, I worked on that a little bit. I contributed the idea of insult sword fighting to that, but uh, you know, really I, w- I wasn't part of the core team, so I got to enjoy it more as a spectator than a uh, developer. And I also really enjoyed uh, Day of the Tentacle that was done uh, primarily by Dave Grossman and Tim Schafer. I just thought the the comedy and the puzzles in that one came together particularly well. I particularly like the time travel puzzles uh, in that game that involved some pretty outrageous stunts. Well, one of my favorite $700 systems has got to be the 3DO, so I have to know what your involvement with the, with the 3DO was there. Well, I was employee number nine at the, it was actually called SMSG when I joined. They hadn't even named it the, the 3DO company. Wow. And I worked directly for Trip Hawkins, who had, you know, started the company sure. uh, after starting Electronic Arts. And uh, it was quite a wild ride. I was just there for uh, the first two years, really, as we went public. And, um, it was my friend RJ that I mentioned from Sinistar. He actually worked on the hardware for the 3DO and let me know about it early on uh, after I left LucasArts and said, you really should come here and, and mm-hmm. get involved in the startup. Uh, and it was uh, really ahead of its time. I and mean, what Trip mm-hmm. envisioned was kind of like what you know, the Xbox 360 is today. That sure. He hoped that we could build that with the technology of the mid-90s, and, and of course it just wasn't quite possible. But that idea of having a disc-based system that would play movies and play high-resolution games, and one of the things Trip used as a selling point is that he envisioned this future where it would all be you know hooked up, uh, networked together, and you'd be able to play a game and watch a movie and see somebody wearing clothes on, on the movie and say, yeah, I'd like to buy that and you know be taken to a, uh, a Macy's uh, account to order it online. And this was all you know, pre-World Wide Web, so he was really uh, quite a visionary on that. But as you say, $700, which wasn't our original intention, it was a pretty stiff price to pay for a game console. Corrected for inflation, it was still the second most expensive console, I think, of all time. Uh, with I think it was the Neo Geo was the only one that mm. actually cost more. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I had I, Neo Geo. I had the another very expensive uh, system to to import was the uh, Super Graphics, the NEC Super Graphics, which was the successor to the PC Engine Turbo Graphics. But I also had the 3DO, and I had the CDI as well. Those were all pretty expensive uh, systems, and the Laser Active that was expensive as well. But yeah, the, the, well, I worked on uh, almost all those systems, not on Laser Active, but on most of the others at one time or another. Really fantastic. Well, the 3DO. I mean, hey, you couldn't go wrong because you had Shelley Duvall's It's a Bird Life uh, that you could play in there for six months. Yeah, we had a little trouble with the launch titles for a while. That was going to be our number one launch title and we were pretty horrified, but uh, uh, they came through with... um Oh, God, what was it called? It wasn't Road Rash, but it was... Uh... Crash and Burn, that's what it was called. Hey, very good. Absolutely. Yeah. Boy, yeah, I, I, I played. I still can play that. Uh, you know, it's a little rough, because it, 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 the pixels are, are showing their age, but, but it, still, it still has a lot of uh, comedy to it. It's still a big production for its time. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was uh, really... Um, Strauss Zelnick had, had come over from uh, the movie industry to uh, head up Crystal Dynamics and, and mm. you know, really wanted it to be treated in the same level as movie productions. That in the mid-90s at that point, there was a, a big push to uh, blend uh, Hollywood and games. And uh, in the games industry, we were a little resentful because the Hollywood people were kind of coming in and trying to take over, and uh, that didn't work out too well. Right, 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 right. You had mentioned about 
bringing back graphical adventures, making a resurgence. Of course, you know, every every genre of games goes through uh, swells. And uh, I, I don't think anything really killed graphical adventures, uh, unless you might think something did. I don't think there was necessarily a proliferation of graphical adventures. I just think it went through its natural cycle. But Telltale Games has brought back familiar franchises like Sam and Max and most recently Monkey Island. Um, what do you think of the Telltale's episodic gaming formula? I, I think it works quite well. I mean, it, it lowers the, the barrier to entry. Uh, we wanted to do that you know, back 20 years ago, but the, the market wasn't ready for it. That You really need online distribution to make episodic work because if you're selling a game in a store, a cheap episodic game takes up just as much shelf space as a much bigger, you know, uh, full price game, and yet it only makes a very small margin for the store owner. So there always was tremendous resistance to putting cheap games on the shelves. But of course, when you don't have shelves, then there's no problem, mm-hmm. and it means that people can uh, try something episodic and and you know see if they like it before they commit to the whole thing. I think it's great. I played uh, the first episode of the new Monkey Island game, and Dave Grossman, who was involved with the very first uh, couple of Monkey Island games, has been creative director over at Telltale and doing a great job, and they, they have a lot of other ex-LucasArts guys there, so they've, they've kept a really nice feel to it. Oh, great. Uh, what what systems do you currently own or play? Oh, a little bit of everything. I have to say, just on uh, Saturday, a couple days ago, I got my uh, first iPhone, and I've just started to put games on that and I'm uh, already in love with it. I have a feeling I'll be playing a lot of games on that one. I've got a, um, an Xbox 360 and a Wii. I've, I've played a lot of uh, Wii games with uh, my daughter and my wife and I had a PSP but the, the disk drive died. Uh, I have a DS that I use all the time when I go uh, to the gym. I, I play uh, whatever the latest version of Advance Wars is as I work on a stationary bike. Oh, great. And uh, it's a way of using my game addiction in a positive sense because I, I burn a lot more calories when I'm playing that game than I do when I'm uh, you know, just trying to pedal. Oh, there you have it. You hear it here first. And boy, talk about a, a system that really would work well on graphical adventures. I think the iPhone could do that quite well. Um, I guess oh, absolutely. Don't I've been we- talking to my friends about that, and uh, I really think we're going to be seeing a lot of, not necessarily, see, I, I'm a little bit leery of graphic adventures that, as you say, they never quite died out, but they certainly, particularly in the U.S., went into a very quiet phase. Mm-hmm. And I think there were, unfortunately, some pretty good reasons for that. That okay. the, the most important one, it's a bit abstract, but uh, in every other type of game, you can gradually, incrementally get better at, uh, advancing through the game, you know, whether it's you know, killing monsters or uh, accumulating uh, objects and going up levels. But with uh, you know, adventure games, it's solving puzzles, and you either solve the puzzle or you don't. That, you know, hint systems can kind of get you partway there, but not really, and it's not very satisfying to partially solve a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is a fatal flaw, I think, at making adventure games, at least in their kind of classic point and click solve the puzzle method mass market and that's why uh ron's new game for example is more in the diablo role-playing vein you know we're, we're a lot of us are trying to experiment now with bringing the same kind of story and even in some cases humor to new game genres but not be stuck with puzzle solving is the only way to uh, actually progress through the story gotcha gotcha great uh, well that's that's very exciting what are your thoughts on the shift from raster graphics to the polygons in the graphical adventures. Well, I've always been kind of agnostic when it comes to graphics. That The first game that I saw at LucasArts when I came to interview was Rescue on Fractalus that was way ahead of its time doing a, essentially a first-person 3D game with, you know, they did a lot of trickery to, to make it look right, but at the time it was much more realistic as a, a 3D flying and shooting game mm-hmm. than anything that had been done before. So all of my career, really, I've been uh, on that edge of 2D and 3D and new technology, really, I think gameplay is much more about what you do as a player, and the graphics are really the aesthetics and the, the veneer, and it's it's certainly important, but, you know, in the same way that a sports car will look a lot better with a beautiful paint job, but you still don't start thinking about the paint before you, you start building it. It's uh, mm-hmm. you know, the last thing you put on that way. 
I see, I see. For the past 13 years, you have formed your own company, The Inspiracy. That's right. I've been uh, basically working as a freelance game designer. And at this point, with 13 years under my belt, I'm pretty sure I've been doing that longer than anyone else in the world. Uh, I, I probably would have heard about it if there's anyone else who's continuously being a freelance game designer. And it's been great. I really love the lifestyle, and uh, I love the variety that it, it brings me. With the Inspiracy, I went to the website, of course, and I uh, looked there. There's something else very interesting to me. Serious Games and, of course, the 400 Project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, that was something uh, Hal Barwood, who was my collaborator, co-designer on Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, he and I became friends back then in 90, 92, and have basically stayed friends ever since. And oh, about seven or eight years ago, he gave a talk at the Game Developers Conference in uh, San Jose at that point about the idea that there might be 400 or so rules of good game design. <laughs> and he set it out almost as a a random number just uh, he had come up with four rules that he wanted to talk about and so four of the 400 sounded great because of the alliteration it wasn't really a, a serious study but it, it really intrigued me and a lot of other people and i went to hal and said how about if we start collecting what these rules are from other game designers write up our own and so we've been doing that primarily me actually i, I did it through the game developer magazine design column that i i wrote for about six years and uh, we've got a few hundred of these at this point, and I, I recently actually started expanding it and thinking of doing a book about it. No, and uh, they range from really common sense stuff, practical things about the process of design, like how you should probably start with a middle level in the game and not the very first or very last level, mm. uh, to more abstract things. There, there's a, a quote from Albert Einstein that I particularly like where he said, uh, Everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler, which I think is a wonderful <laughs> premise for a lot of game design. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of my game design friends about it, and we've kicked it back and forth, and uh, it's really, I think, a very useful tool in the arsenal of uh, most game designers at this point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, anything else that you wanted to talk about? Not well, all. I, you know, I mentioned serious games just because that's oh, yeah. been a fascination with me. That uh, that's really a very new area that involves games that have a purpose beyond entertainment. That often it's uh, training and education, but it can also be persuasion. Uh, there is a game, for example, called Darfur is Dying that was put out as a student mm -hmm. project to show people what was going on in the Darfur region in Sudan. Mm -hmm. There are games that actually treat illnesses, everything from arachnophobia to attention deficit disorder to wow. Parkinson's. There are games to help train doctors and healthcare givers. Games, I worked on uh, a recent one with my old friend Larry Holland, who did the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games. We did a game for uh, Cisco Systems to teach network engineers about basic networking. And wow. I, my sense is that in another 10 or 20 years, games and interactive learning simulations are going to be a bigger business than the entire uh, entertainment game industry is right now. Wow, that is very, very interesting. And that's definitely what our listeners and the whole We Talk Game crew is all about, is that is that integration, that vision of understanding that it, it goes beyond gaming. It, it's, it can. It can. It doesn't have to. It can go into learning. It can go into the arts. It can, it can all be a, a happening of life. Well, and I should say one of my, my favorite projects I worked on as a serious game was something called Remission from a company called Hope Lab. And that was actually done to help teenagers with cancer learn why they have to stick to their chemotherapy treatment wow. regimens. And the thing that was really gratifying about it is that they did a, a huge study, I think $3.75 million just to study its effectiveness and found, uh, you know, quite to everyone's relief that it actually made a big difference in getting these kids who normally would, would tend to stop taking chemotherapy uh, drugs because the, the drugs themselves made them feel sick. Sure. And teenagers are not really good at abstract thinking about what's going to happen to them. Sure. But by playing the game uh, and, and really no other... Uh, factor because they, they did a double blind study with this it actually helped keep these kids on their chemotherapy regimen and uh and it was a basically a third person shooter game too it's very violent but you're killing bacteria and cancer cells so ah. 
when people talk about how violent games should be banned, I like to bring that up as a, a counterexample that it's actually saving the lives of kids with cancer. And like many other censorship arguments, if you start to get too far over and say everything should be banned and it's just all terrible, you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's all, it's all part of uh, life. I mean, life is nothing but eating other things so that you can live. That's really a, a dynamic story. And Noah, you are a trove of video game information and experience. I'd love to have you on the show again. Maybe in the future we could talk about some other things. But thank you so very much for taking time out of your schedule. Noah Falstein, thank you for being on We Talk Games. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. That was one of my favorite interviews to date. When when I remember, when, yeah, when We Talk Games Eight came out, and when I finished up the interview with Noah, I just thought, man, I, I just enjoyed that so much. I I, I really loved that interview. Uh, now, Dave Grossman, by contrast, um, a lot of people thought, was he even in the interview? He yeah. is just a very creative fella, and I really loved this interview as well. I think we need to get him back on the line. You do. Yes, because he's very funny and he's uh, very humorous and he's yeah. a nice guy. But um, he right now, currently, he's working with Telltale Games and a lot of big things are happening with them, particularly that they've landed the Back to the Future and Jurassic oh. Park franchises to make games. And that's kind of exciting. Oh, that is neat to revisit those those uh, type of things that were started in the theaters. And, and maybe now we could get a good Jurassic Park, number one. And yes. who doesn't want to try to explore the world of uh, Back to the Futures and where all that went? And, and especially Back to the Future 3. I mean, yeah, I don't let's know. Let's try when... to forget about that movie. Come on, it had a choo-choo. I know you love choo-choo trains. I love the choo-choos. Well, anyway, let's get to the poet, the creator, the artist, the visionary, Dave Grossman. San Rafael, go! Dave Grossman, welcome to We Talk Games. Hey, thanks. Nice to be here. Right on, man. Now, uh, earlier in the show, we had Noah on. I know that you worked with Noah in the past. Oh, yes. Quite a few times, yes. Right on, right on. Hi, gentlemen. He is. It was my favorite interview so far, I think. Uh, I don't. I have no idea why, but for some reason, that's how it rang through to me. I, I believe, actually, that Noah was the first person to look over my shoulder while I was working and laugh at what I was doing. Well, that's a good thing, I guess, considering what your product is. <laughs> Unless you were working on something serious, then that would be kind of, I guess... Not I was, good. but I switched to comedy immediately because of that. Yeah. <laughs> I no, I was actually uh, I was writing some dialogue for some guys in a circus tent on the secret of uh, secret of Monkey Island back about twenty years ago. Speaking of that, and how did you get your start? More or less completely by accident. I was a um, computer science uh, geek type kid. Okay. And I had I had been to uh, college, and I had even been to graduate school for a little while studying artificial intelligence and decided that I didn't actually want to stay in academia forever, so I was just kind of looking for work, uh, doing something that, that wasn't going to be uh, sort of designing missile guidance systems or anything reprehensible like that. Mm. And I answered an ad at, uh, at Lucasfilm. They were looking for uh, people to help them design and, and implement their game, and I thought, oh, that sounds harmless enough. Wow, wow. So you started right off right there. I did start right off right there, yeah. I, um, I gathered that... What drew the attention to my resume was the fact that I had listed apple juice as an interest, and somebody thought that that was funny. So that got me the interview, and I'm still not sure why they hired me, but they did. That uh, reminds me of some of the jobs I got in IT, where most companies, when they try to hire someone for IT, especially be like an administrator, they look for things such unneeded requirements such as computer sciences or things that you went to school for but they would ask this of, of people that just needed to you know nortel and things that aren't really computer science related but the most impressive thing to them on my resume was that i had a website early 90s and that has nothing to do with administrating uh, infrastructure of some big corporation but yet that was impressive to them so who knows in, in what the early people... 90s i suppose it did actually require a little bit of technical know-how it doesn't really now but at the time yeah it still was just a markup language nothing nothing deeper than that but I was I was amazed at the time, uh, though people were offering me money, to, large sums of money, actually, to come and build websites for them, which didn't seem very uh, very interesting to me. This was during the freelance part of my career. I see. And uh, there just was a, a, a sort of a general lack of knowledge about exactly how easy it all was. 
that I guess that's why it was impressive to some people. But apple juice, that is in a whole class by itself, and I don't know why I soiled that wonderful, delightful story with my mundane uh, bit of interjection there. <laughs> now, you started right out in Lucasfilm, and you started right out with graphic-based adventures or text-based adventures or that type of genre? Yeah, yeah, Graphic Adventures was what they had specifically hired us to do. Um, they were going to kind of up the ante a little bit there and, and try and uh, try and make more of those, and they basically decided that they were going to need people to implement them and, and kind of grow into lead designers, and they were building their stable, I guess. I see, I see. And as far as the programmers that we've had on the show, I think you're fairly unique in that you've really stuck to your genre. Pretty much, yeah. I've I've strayed a little bit. I I, um, I did a little uh, writing for things like Total Annihilation for uh, Cave Dog. Okay, uh, that was just kind of the Ron Gilbert connection there. Uh, but by and large, yeah, I have stuck pretty closely to adventure games, story games, things of that nature, interactive story books, even. And what I like you- them. I, I I think they're interesting. There's a whole uh, sort of um, unique narrative form going on there that uh, is still uh, kind of in its infancy in terms of what people have explored about it. True, and I am a big fan of Japanese gaming, and of course anything that comes out of studios in Japan is seriously lacking in that story element, especially after it gets uh, translated. Um, but even before that, translation... That can always be a problem, yeah. yeah. But even before translation, it can be... Low. Now, if they just made all the translations like early Speed Racer, those Translux gimmicks, that would be fantastic. Then it would be a whole different story. Who cares if the story's bad if everyone talks in a real weird canter? I gather sometimes they'll do the translations twice and it works out better. They'll they'll do one translation for language and then they'll translate the the English language story into English again and make it good. I see, I see. Speaking of making things good, what was the best thing that you can remember about working at the Skywalker Ranch and, and also the worst thing? The best thing was probably lunch, actually. Um they had a like a four star restaurant chef oh. being there for us, uh, extremely subsidized, so that uh, you know I could go into this uh, swanky room that was basically like a you know kind of a nice restaurant, get some really great food, take half of it uh, back to my office and save it for dinner. I think they were kind of trying to set up uh, an environment that would encourage us never to actually leave the the, uh, the ranch, gotcha. which is sort of a it's it's a half hour from anywhere, so uh, th- that was actually a good thing that uh, we didn't have to like go out to get lunch or anything. I know that you enjoy a little poetry. Here's here's one uh, right off the cuff, which I stole from my youth. Lunch, it's actually pretty good. Awesome poem. Like Thank it. you. Now uh, I did steal that from my lead guitar. So uh, what? Uh, but you know he doesn't listen to his show, so it's mine for all intents and purposes. What do you think was the worst thing about working at the Skywalker Ranch? Or was there any downside? Not about the ranch itself. Well, the commute was actually a little bit ugly. Mm. It took an hour from my house and an hour back. Uh, and, and there was a little bit of a kind of a reality disconnect because the place was so nice to be at. Then when I got home at night, it was kind of like, oh, gee, this is, this is what real life is like. You know, <laughs> sort of paint peeling off the walls and people yelling outside and, and, and sort of ugliness. I suppose it's true that the, uh, you know, the hours were, were, were kind of long and, and the pay wasn't very good, but... The hours were long because I was really excited about what I was doing and didn't really want to go home. I kind of wanted to stick around and play with the game some more and write some more stuff. And, yep. you know, the pay was bad because I was just starting out. So. I see, I see. And really argue with that. What, what type of equipment were you programming on back then? Wow, we were using PCs. They were like, uh, I probably had like a 486 on my, on my desk. The target machines for the games were 286s because that was what most people had. At the time, which is why all those games are, you know, 320 by 200, run real slow, the animations are all real tiny. Mm. Uh, but that was kind of, you know, it was an interesting box to be to be playing around in because it made the it, it made the games be kind of like little uh, little puppet theater things. Sure. And because you sort of had to accomplish everything with just a few little gestures with the character, you could sort of reach up high in the air or reach out straight then you had to use that for everything they're going to shake hands it was the same as picking up something from the table so because you didn't have to sort of animate everything specially and you didn't have to lip sync anything you didn't have to record any dialogue you could just keep putting content into the game like right up until the last second and that was really a, a pretty cool thing to be able to do 
Great. Now, Full Throttle, that, that was at a later time. That was, that was a big jump in production value. You, you had Silicon Graphic workstations, I'm sure, doing some of the... Um, I don't know if uh, the art got rotoscoped on top of that or, or how that all worked. I know Peter Chan was a, a fen- phenomenal artist of that. That uh, that was one of my favorite series, especially for the Mac. Pete Chan was uh, actually yeah, a tremendous artist and and really really fast. Um, I worked with him on uh, on Day of the Tentacle and and um, he did all the backgrounds to the entire game himself and he would paint them uh, first on paper and then scan them and and kind of clean them up. And they would take him about two days apiece. And wow. So he would, you know, come in early every day, and he would leave at four thirty and go home to his family. And the rest of us who were sort of staying till two in the morning, like, but you know, what can we, what can we do? He, he got his work done. He's responsible for that soda machine and the clock. Yeah. Trying to think of all the other neat uh, backgrounds from that that series. Speaking of that series. The game mechanics were similar to Clock Tower uh, on the original Maniac Mansion, but then uh, Day of the Tentacle, you abandoned the cat and mouse element. Why the change between the original Maniac Mansion and Day of the Tentacle? Well, that was mostly about time. Five years had gone by since the original Maniac had been released. And we all kind of felt like, okay, well, if we tried to sort of make a, a direct sequel to this, something that felt the same, then it would just automatically feel dated. So... It was kind of a kind of a unique opportunity to do a sequel without really doing a sequel. So we got all the benefits of having some characters that were designed and funny already, uh, but we didn't have to worry about kind of uh, slavishly aping a style or anything. And we could we could just sort of go on and, and do our own thing and make it make it the best and coolest thing we could think of. Now you're at Telltale Games. I am, and right as we speak. And that was started by a lot of the people that used to work in Lucas Films as well. Yeah, quite a few of the um, the, the members of the uh, last and greatest Sam and Max team at, uh, at LucasArts uh, sort of cut and ran and, and started this company uh, in 2004. When you worked at LucasArts, did George ever share with you his master plan to destroy pinball? <laughs> Uh, I do remember going actually up to the up to the main house and checking out a pinball game. I think it was an Indiana Jones one, and they had like a prototype model, and they just wanted to have people who actually enjoyed pinball play it and tell them whether there was, whether it was any good. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I think there was actually some support of pinball going on. But there, it sounds like a bit of animosity. Perhaps I just didn't realize that, uh, that that there was a secret underlying plan going on at the time. I was duped. It's not my fault, I swear. Well, I'll get to the bottom of this one day, believe me. Telltale Games, did they start their console comeback on the Wii, the WiiWare, with the uh, Strong Bad episodic? Yeah, I think that was our, our first console title, actually, was, was uh, Strong Bad's cool game for attractive people on WiiWare. Got my money. And we're, um, we're gradually trying to uh, kind of get ourselves onto every downloadable channel possible. Oh, very but, good. Um, we we wear seemed like uh, like kind of a good entry point for us because we we, we sort of feel like the um, just the Nintendo audience in general is probably in tune to the kind of semi casual semi mainstream experience that our our games are meant to provide. They're they're kind of they exist kind of somewhere between hardcore and casual space. Right, right. And now I know Sam and Max is available at the Xbox Live Arcade as well. And PS3. Wallace and Gromit too. Oh, oh, right, right. Wallace and Gromit. Very good. Uh, but no love for the PS3 yet. Is that in the works, or what? What stopped that from happening? That's all business deals and and what opportunities present themselves first. I see. Uh, we I see. we had some good opportunities to get onto the Wii and the uh, and the Xbox that that came partly out of actually our our CSI series allowed us to uh, to kind of um, get pieces of the engine working on those platforms. Oh, gotcha. Uh, so that was just just opportunity, really. Oh, look who came. They're back. Uh, stinky. Sorry. Other things going on around here in the background. What systems do you currently own? Me, currently. I've got a Wii in my living room. Uh, I still have a PlayStation 2. I was probably the last guy in the world to get one of those. Uh, I've got a DS, and I've got a PC. I've still got my Super Nintendo you know, working in there, and my uh, my Sega Genesis. Very good. Hey, Dave! Hey, how's it going? Hey! Hey, do you, like, do you like those things? Which things? You know, those computers. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like those. They're uh, they do what you tell them. Oh uh, yeah, I like them. Yeah, I I used to own an ENIAC. An ENIAC. Oh, that's that's old school. Uh, stinky. I bet that you you probably owned a difference engine. Get out of here. Oi, oi. All right, that jerk. How long have you been at Telltale Games? Oh, I signed up in the middle of uh, 2005, so I guess that's been around four and a half years going on. That's a long time. It was right at the end of uh, the first Bone game was kind of getting ready to come out the door. And then the next thing we did was uh, the Great Cow Race. I was the, uh, the, the lead on that, and then we sort of launched into Sam and Max afterwards. Any plans on Full Throttle? I have a great name for it if you do a follow-up. Fuller Throttle. That's my... Fuller Throttle? Okay, yeah. writing that down. <laughs> that will Just never happen. Never mind. Fuller Throttle. How many T's in Throttle? Uh, I use three. Four. Yeah, I, I think we'll give this one four, though, just for extra oomph. I think that would be over with the kids. Throttle. <laughs> or maybe just put the extra one at the beginning. I like maybe it. Maybe we'll go with five T's. You know what? You just can't have too many T's. Five T's with Fuller Throttle. Why not? Tim will be proud. One of the T's will be for him. Ah, hey, that's an Easter egg. Built-in <laughs> Easter egg. Now, I notice that you have something I'm also very, very interested in. You, you've taken your ideas, your concept, your persona, and you've put it online, I guess, I think, I'm assuming, in Frenopolis. Yeah, Frenopolis is kind of um, meant to be an imagined, you know, kind of a kind of a semi-imaginary, semi-real thing. That's the kind of the space between my brain and the internet and the garage of my house, which is where I keep the books that I sell through that website. Uh, but it's also got uh, you know pictures of my tiki collection and my uh, my uh, annual uh, jack o' lantern carving, the, the pumpkin house of horrors. That's pretty fun, actually. That gets more hits than anything else on the site. A girlfriend of mine, she's a very good. I, I, I don't know. Unfortunately, she would be labeled as like a gothic type of artist, although that has nothing to do with it. But it's very Edgar Allan Poe-ish in painting form. And every year she has a porch full of vomiting pumpkins. Awesome. Yeah, man. That sounds awesome. That sounds like my house. And it, it fit right in. I, I was enjoying the pumpkins. I was enjoying the hilarious poems. It, I could almost hear Vincent Price reading it on uh, the hilarious House of Frankenstein. It's a type of mm-hmm. of tempo it it, uh, it uh, instilled into me. That didn't make sense. I like the ode to the stuff in a sink. Uh, that's your book, I guess. That yeah, that is my book. It came out of my um, my poem of the week project, which. It started actually in 1994 and is still going, surprisingly enough. And I, I just started doing that because, you know, I thought making funny poems was kind of fun. And I gave it to myself as kind of a, just a writing project because they say if you're going to write, you should just write all the time. And sure. if, you, uh, if you have a weekly deadline, then you'll keep writing all the time. You're kind of forced to. And, and, uh, and I started sending them to people online to keep myself honest so that there would be somebody out there who was, like, actually expecting to have a new poem. And so far, that's worked, actually. I'm almost up to 700 of them in 14 years. Wow. Well, and uh, it was it provided a good uh, a good groundwork, actually, of experience for, for doing games episodically. It's kind of the same thing. You have to sort of focus in on what's important and make the game and sort of move on to the, to the next one uh, as fast as you can. Sure, sure. And then, I, you know, eventually uh, I had uh, enough of them that, uh, that, that, that a theme started to suggest itself for a book, which was... Um, uh, sort of poems about being a being a single guy, you know, kind of kind of bachelorhood and putting your feet on the table and uh, and uh, the the existential existential angst of, of shaving, you know, that that kind of thing. And I I was uh, involved at that point and and thinking about getting married, so I knew that I had to get the book done before I did that, <laughs> or, or I wasn't going to have any uh, you know any more juice for that. May I may I suggest a hilarious limerick section for maybe a, an offshoot at some point in the future? An offshoot, just just do limericks. I would love it. The weekly limerick. The weekly limerick. You should listen to uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the radio. They do uh, they do limericks. Ah, uh, and of course you have a great political section there as well. Your your hate on the daylight saving time, which I love. You love daylight savings time, or you love my hate of daylight savings time? I love your your opposition to it. Yes, I've always thought it was just silly and caused a lot of problems. You know, they started and everybody's late for work, and my great aunt missed her own sister's funeral because it was right after uh, daylight savings time. So, no lie. 
Wow. Well, then I then I understand. And, and you'd like to punch Ben Franklin right in his face. Ben Franklin, the uh, the inventor of daylight savings. Wow. I, I respect the guy for a lot of things, but not that. Especially for his fashion. His fashion. Well, yes, his fashion. He was always he was quite popular with the ladies. I gather. Hmm. Well, that's enough material for your next uh, gimmick, I'm sure. Now, uh, would you, speaking of which, you have anything in the works that you could let us in on, or it's all hush hush, and you don't can't break the. Well, not entirely hush hush. I mean, uh, I've been I've been spending a lot of time with the Sam Max team lately because we're we're designing a new season there. Uh, the illustrious Chuck Jordan is uh, sort of taking the reins of that and doing some interesting things that I think people are going to like. Fantastic. Dave, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know that uh, you know it, it was it was an effort, so I I truly truly appreciate. It. Thanks for letting us know that uh, yes, indeed, there definitely was some type of plot there to destroy pinball in the Lucas camp. Fight the power. Fight the power. Right on, man. Hey, join us again in the future to help. We'll push at least five or six games. I promise. See you now. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Two fantastic interviews from two of the big names in the point-and-click adventure series and, and the whole beginning of I'm that I'm still genre. marking out right it's, now it's, as we speak. I, You know what? I love making We Talk games. Uh, you line so up some great interviews, and I get to talk to these people, and they're people that have touched me already because I've played their games. And uh, how cool is it to be able to actually pick their brains, and find out what went into it. To see behind the curtain, if you will. Pull it back just a little bit, but not too much. Not too much. No. Hey, that's it for this episode of Interview Stargate. Oh, man, already? Yeah, well, that's how these things go. Got to keep them short and sweet, except for the last marathon. We don't want them to go into three and four hours like our regular show goes. Hey, we've been doing good. I've been keeping it under two and a half. We wrangled it in. I think the longest we go now is... uh, like eight hours, eight or nine yeah, hours. Yeah, you know, that's better than the 48-hour episodes we had. Right on. Yeah, no, I try to keep it under three. And I tell you what, those go so quick. If you want to see just how quick, go to wetalkgames.com, become a part of that social media networking family, and we'll see you there. Take care, everybody. Bye. I'll miss you all. Bye.